maybe the hardest job in all of handicapping, and this goes for any walk of life, is trying to predict what the public will embrace and make into a thing. I mean, there was the pet rock, there's the Kardashians, and even Sean Colvin. In racing, turf was considered almost irrelevant 30 years ago in the United States, but grass racing's making a bit of a comeback. We'll discuss why. Plus, a man who might have the entire horse racing industry quaking in its boots with a new innovation that's so crazy it might actually work if it was ever allowed. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. Man, they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. If you've listened to this podcast before, you may have heard me tell the story about a chat I had on this show with Joe Harper, the CEO of the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club. I asked him why Del Mar doesn't offer a major stakes for three-year-olds in the summer, the way Monmouth does with the Haskell and Saratoga with the Travers. Harper's answer was, we love our turf racing. While that didn't at all answer my original question, it did signal a growing trend in horse racing here in the United States. In the last three decades, the percentage of all thoroughbred races run on the turf in this country has jumped from 5% to 17%, and that's with a steep decline in the total number of races run in general over that time. In fact, almost 40% of all graded stakes last year were held on turf, and Chad Brown won all but three of them, I'm told. Well, not quite, but you get the idea. It almost doesn't make sense that it took this long to get to this point. The first major thoroughbred in this country was Diomed, who won the very first running of the English Derby, the Derby, in 1780. That came while America was still in the middle of fighting for its independence from the same Great Britain. Of course, the Derby was, and of course still is, a grass race, but dirt has proven cheaper to maintain. That's partly how it became the preferred surface here in the United States. It didn't hurt that the race that most captivated the American public, the Kentucky Derby, was and continues to be run on a dirt surface. So what's behind the rise of grass racing here in the States recently? To get a little better perspective, we welcome in Sid Fernando, president and CEO of Work Thoroughbred Consultants, who wrote about the rise of turf racing in the Thoroughbred Daily News recently. You quoted one breeder in your article, sir, as saying that there was a prejudice against using stallions known to breed turf runners until not that long ago. Why do you think that was? Historically, we're a dirt racing environment, you know, as opposed to Europe, which is practically all turf. As that article pointed out, farms are now kind of offering more turf horses. It really all started in the most recent part of this with Kitten's Joy. He went to stud and he became the leading sire in the country uh, by siring predominantly turf and all-weather horses. And his success pointed out to a lot of people that uh, you can exist and succeed with turf horses in this country. So that's 
kind of created more opportunities for terror forces and it's opened the door for more people to explore breeding the terror forces and also correspondingly the tracks you know they used to just have like mates you might have some maiden races for turf horses but now now there's like a program in place you know you've got a lot of maiden races for turf horses you also have allowance races for turf horses so there's actually a developmental program now where horses young horses can actually start off on the turf you know what happened in the past was that Horses would start off in dirt, and if there weren't any good guys, would throw them on turf to see what they could do there, you know. But now people are actually starting right off with turf. And concurrently, there's also a lot of international interest. There's interest in European racing. You know, owners are now fixated on sort of going to Royal Ascot, for example, to race. Wesley Ward kind of has pioneered that recently. I was there this year. I can certainly understand why. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Santa Anita announced that due to its turf course performing so well, they were able to run 70 additional races this year. That's a lot of races. Yeah, exactly. The other part that, you know, has has made tracks uh, go to, you know, as handle has declined, generally in the sport and everybody's struggling for the for the dollar with sports gambling and everything at competing with racing what has become popular for the tracks to card more turf races is also the fact that turf races tend to be full fields they tend therefore to create more wagering why is that that they tend to be more full fields but dirt races maybe don't combination of factors but if you look at say some subset of horses say later three-year-olds for example a lot of those horses that have been running on dirt it's time now to see if they might have opportunities on turf so there's always that so you get more horses that are given a second life to see what they what they can do on turf you also have now more horses going straight to turf than ever before like i just explained Turf races in general, the field size is much bigger than dirt racing. And there aren't as many turf races still, so they tend to attract more horses. And because of these full fields, the handle is increased too. What were the reasons that that dirt became the predominant surface in this country in the first place? Because most of the world, it is turf anyway that is the main surface. That's right. But America was always unique. From the very beginning, we've always just run on dirt. And dirt is conducive to speed horses. It's it's conducive to horses that sprint. And so that, that type of combination created a, a uniquely American racehorse that became very popular around the world for its toughness, for its speed. Speed horses normally tend to be, you know, more muscular, uh, uh, bigger horses too. American horses uh, had that kind of built-in characteristic. And as racing uh, proliferated here and, and the game became bigger, uh, you know, that was that became known as a really the American type of horse. A horse like Secretariat, for example, the epitome of that type of horse. And they became very uh, popular overseas as well. 
Then what started to happen in the 70s was that the 64 Derby winner, Northern Dancer, when he went to stud, uh, he became one of the greatest stallions of all time. In the straightaway, Northern Dancer is on the lead. Bill Rise rallies strong to challenge. Bill Rise cuts the margin with every stride. But Bill Hartack holds Northern Dancer in there for the victory by a neck. And his son, Nijinsky, uh, went to Europe, won the British Triple Crown. And his horses tended to really like the turf a lot. Uh, they really acted on turf, and Europeans came in droves to buy Northern Dancers for Europe. But the bottom line is that our horses were very popular overseas because of the speed that they had, and uh, that was all created from this dirt environment. But things shift as the economies here have squeezed some of the smaller tracks out, and there's a there's a shift towards the higher-end tracks, you know, Santa Anita, Saratoga, Gulfstream, Belmont, so forth. Those are the tracks that are really offering more turf because the higher-end game here is becoming more Europeanized in a way. And so because of this, we're getting more and more turf proliferating here. We're talking with breeding consultant Sid Fernando here on In The Gate. Now, that said, it's no secret that to fall in line with the rest of the world in terms of sharing horses for racing and breeding, U.S. horses would have to run without the race day usage of the diuretic Lasix around the world. The horses that are being bred here are running with Lasix. How is the rise of turf racing in this country happening so substantially without the banning of race day Lasix? which is not allowed anywhere else in the world. Uh, well, when Leslie Ward, for example, takes his horses to Europe, he doesn't, he doesn't use Lasix on those horses over there, obviously. But even horses, for example, that have used Lasix here as runners, they are still in demand the world over as breeding stock. It just so happens that, you know, we allow Lasix here for racing in this country, but it hasn't stopped any of our horses when they've gone to places like Royal Ascot or Dubai, for example, where we've been very successful in the Dubai World Cup. There's a movement here, obviously, to try to abolish race day racing, as you said, but in terms of practicality, it hasn't stopped any of our horses from going overseas and winning. Do you think this push for turf racing and turf breeding here will have an influence on the Lasix question? That's a very good question, and I think it does. Just to explain a couple of things, turf racing in general, and I'm speaking anecdotally from years of observation and speaking to trainers, is easier on a horse. Uh, they don't bleed as much. Turf, Of course, Lasix is used to stop uh, bleeding, and turf horses tend not to bleed as much as dirt horses. Dirt horses, as I pointed out earlier, they come out of the gate running hard. Uh, they've got dirt contaminants coming into their breathing apparatus. They tend to bleed more than turf horses who are running on grass. Uh, turf racing also tends to be longer racing, so the horses aren't pushed hard early. So the surface effects are there as well as the style of racing. And it's one of the reasons why you don't have as much bleeding in Europe, for example, as you do here. Because when you run on turf, you have less bleeding to begin with. 
Do you envision a day when a majority of races in this country are run on grass instead of dirt? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, too, because it's, you know, it's, it's certainly going that way in a lot of ways. But I, I, I think ultimately it won't, it won't go there because people here want to win the Kentucky Derby. They want to win the Triple Crown races. They want to win the Travers, the Beaters Club Classic big races, uh, the breeding industry ultimately is built around breeding and uh, producing horses for the classics. I just recently, as he pointed out, I was in Saratoga and I I was chatting with uh, Claiborne's president, Walker Hancock, and Claiborne's uh, bloodstock manager and, and, and Stallion Seasons manager, Bernie Sams. And Bernie made a really good point uh, to me. He said, you know, you, you look around the sale, because people here aren't looking here. They're not here to buy the Belmont Derby winner. They're here to buy the Kentucky Derby winner. Ultimately, dirt racing is the signature of America, and the Derby signifies the epitome of it. And that's the ultimate goal for people. And so dirt racing will ultimately still be the king of the, uh, the mountain here. Well, don't sleep on grass racing. There's a lot more of it in this country these days. And thank you so much, Mr. Fernando, for enlightening us about it. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. At the recent Jockey Club Roundtable on matters pertaining to racing, there was a strong suggestion made to make the data involved in handicapping a race easy to understand and free to access. Well, our next guest tried to do just that. What kind of reception do you think he got for his efforts? We'll explain when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. It's a natural part of the human condition. Change is hard. And if you think it's tough for consumers like us to change, like buying cars and clothes online instead of in person, for example, what do you think change means to those who stand to lose a lot of money when the old standby processes go away? Like not needing to buy a new camera since you take most of your pictures with your phone nowadays. Since the thoroughbred business moves at a glacial pace, any kind of change posed to the industry is seen in much the same way Blockbuster Video viewed the rise of Netflix. So you can imagine what happened when a software developer from Colorado named Robin Howlett came up with a new app to help handicappers and casual fans sort through racing data. I'll give you two guesses. A. He was welcomed with open arms by industry stakeholders for coming up with a way for anyone, rookie or hardened handicapper, to break down the barrier of understanding past performance charts. Or B, he was told that his idea was a good one, but it needed more examination before it could be implemented. Well, if you guessed C, Robin Howlett was sent a cease and desist letter from Equibase, you'd be right. He tested his new app called Handicapper, with a Y, Handicapper, by using data from Equibase's charts, the same data you get for your monthly subscription fee. That didn't go over too well with Equibase President and Chief Operating Officer Jason Wilson, who later told the Thoroughbred Daily News 
that it's a tough balancing act trying to protect its proprietary data while still making some available for free as customer touch points. Of course, but what does this whole development mean for the future of the racing industry? Robin Howlett is sort of making the media rounds these days to talk about his idea and the execution, literally perhaps, of it, and he shares a few minutes with us here on In the Gate. So what was your goal when you came up with the Handicapper app? My goal was, I guess primarily I wanted to build it for myself, that I had come to the United States about eight years ago and was already a racing fan, but was quite unfamiliar with American racing. And in particular, my my local track was Arapaho Park, a very small, minor track. And on a visit there, I, I really just didn't feel like I was understanding a lot of the information I was seeing, be it, you know, the trainers, jockeys, owners, like who they were, how were they, you know, small in terms of this market or were they dominant? And then in terms of the horses themselves, reading the PPs, looking at the results, I, I, I didn't feel very comfortable that I got a sense of where these horses or these races fit in the larger scheme of things. So my first idea was, I think like a lot of engineers, you want to collect the data and, and examine what are the natural kind of models and networks that exist. So I did ask for a quote from Ecovase to give me all of the, the data out there for the past few years so I could at least understand you know, how my local track was working and how it fit in with either the region or, or the nation. And and the figure they quoted was, was considerably large. And it didn't take long to discover that that market was was not really market not really priced for you know just some kind of exploration or discovery activity. It was for you know serious horse players, people who want to start a commercial product or something like that. So I kept involved with just being a racing fan, and uh, in particular was on social media, just exchanging ideas and commentary with friends. And and a lot of us really just were struggling with the same idea, which was we really would like to some you know explore and create and come up with new experiences or at least contribute to the content that was out there. And a big part of that was obviously the racing data and and being able to to work with it to an extent that you could query it or at least educate yourself more about it. So I tried to see, you know, the charts were really the one piece of information that was kind of out there and, and public and, and free to to examine. And after downloading it one day and, and experimenting with some software, I realized that the way the PDF was put together meant that I could probably figure out a way to extract a lot of the the data within it. And my goal at first was just simply, okay, could I do this? This is This is a tricky way to do it. It needs some interesting problem-solving skills, but it was just a fun kind of challenge to have on the side. Once I had completed that uh, aspect of it, I I wanted to kind of share um, my work with my online friends and my network, but I knew that they weren't engineers like me, and they would struggle with this idea of a piece of code to read this data and and then really do what with it. So I set my mind on a, a project called Handicapper. I wanted to kind of showcase what horse racing could do if it wanted to embrace and engage with people who just wanted to see where the data would lead them. So Handicapper then, in essence, was a product uh, that was designed to be very easy to use, but have kind of various levels of of complexity. 
that it would allow somebody kind of engage with the data at a, at a basic level, eventually taking it to you know, integrating that data with maybe new tools or new pieces of software that might get it just a different view on things. You say you're from overseas, from Ireland, mm-hmm. I believe. The time form ratings in Europe look a lot different from past performance charts in North America. There's very little data in the charts coming from Europe. Was that part of the culture shock that sent you down this path? It was, and I guess, luckily enough, I had been exposed to things um, like speed figures via literature when I was in Ireland. I really didn't have anyone to discuss it with because, you know, in that part of the world, any kind of measurement of time was seen as, you know, not that important. A, a big thing about their ratings and things like that is largely just very rudimentary, you know, who finished in front of whom and by how far. And so this idea of sectional times or, or what we call fractional times throughout a race, these point of call positions, and then actually the, the structure of racing via primarily, you know, the claiming style ladder, that isn't replicated in Europe too. So even as a racing fan, I, I just didn't feel like I could comprehend what I was seeing, or at least even contribute uh, a meaningful or intellectual kind of thought about it. Like, you know, where does racing need to improve? Does this performance actually make sense? Or where is the likely next progression of this performance uh, the next time this horse runs? Like, I like being able to engage with the sport on a deep level and and kind of a academic style level. And I really just didn't feel I had a, a way to get started here without investing, you know, a considerable amount of money. And and really, the, the goal wasn't even for wagering. It was just simply to enjoy the sport um, in the manner that I liked. So when you say you were having trouble with that, are you referring to the visual layout of a past performance chart, that it was hard to look at and interpret what things were, or just that there was so much data that it was almost like overload? Actually, both. Definitely, when you first read the past performances, you can get a general sense of things, but then there are some, you know, columns or fields that are almost hieroglyphics. You know, there, there are acronyms being used, like waiver claim errors or, you know, even the idea of qualifiers and futurities and things like that. That I didn't get the sense like if a stakes race in Arapahoe Park was worth X, you know, where did that, where did, would these horses end up? And would they mean $10,000 claimers at Santa Anita or would they be top quality somewhere else. It really just was, okay, what am I actually seeing and what is it trying to communicate? And then um, that leads you to the larger question of, okay, where does this particular track fit in the grand scheme of things? And you realize that, yeah, there are, you know, dozens and dozens of tracks. There are different circuits. You know, where would, where would I expect once the Arapahoe Park season finishes these horses to run next? And in a small market like this, or even a non-major market, like, where do you go to answer those questions? And it was just difficult to find anybody or to engage with anybody, and, and certainly not at the kind of the technical level, which I is the, you know the way I wanted to enjoy it was. Could I look at this data and, and figure it out for myself? Well, how much of a barrier to entry, so to speak, for the casual fan do you think that trying to read a past performance chart is? I guess it depends on your profile. Um, if one thing I think a, a younger generation has become more comfortable with technology and apps and things like that. Past performances in the charts themselves really haven't changed, I would say, from at least the, the literature I've been consuming in really quite some time. Now, does that mean it's the most effective way to do it? I didn't really want to assume that. Um, 
a very simple example is if you're looking at a result chart and, and you see a particular horse uh, who you thought had an interesting performance and you want to see the race that they did previously, you know, if that chart is in PDF form, now you have to go back, you have to input the date, find the race, find the horse. And it's, it's just a manual activity that you know could be improved. Do you want to purchase handicapping software or wagering software to do that? It, I guess it's up to you and your budget. But the people I was communicating with, you know, we didn't necessarily feel that this was the best way to engage regular fans, especially fans who wanted to at least see something different than what they'd been given before. It's funny you mention that, and we're talking with software developer Robin Howlett here on In The Gate. You know, David Purdom of our ESPN Chalk website told me that younger people, as you mentioned, are far more interested in games of skill like Daily Fantasy instead of games of chance like roulette and craps. Now, racing is still somewhat of a different world for Daily Fantasy players. If you make the data easier to digest, as you've been trying to do, how many of those daily fantasy players would migrate over to racing, do you think? I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, and and if, if in many ways, you know, that's the similar question with the sports betting positions that are happening right now is, is the idea that, you know, once you discover the markets in sports, that horse racing will be a, an existing market that you'll generate interest in. I'd probably be skeptical of it. I think in many ways, you know, when you're learning racing, especially the systems that are there today. There are a lot of things that um, I would say would be troubling for somebody to pick up very easily. I mean, number one is just, you know, how racing is organized. Is there a very kind of obvious, you know, pyramid in terms of um, how races progress, uh, where did the better horses start from, race, etc.? cetera. Um, even the very fact of, you know, the nomenclature of racing, you know, fractions, eighths of a mile, things like that. Like, do people expect that everything that is given currently on the past performances or results charts is all you need to know about a race? In my mind, you know, if you're coming from the daily fantasy sports world, you're provided with a lot of tools out of the box for free so that to aid you to, to play the game as skillfully as you can. I would like to see similar tools for racing and probably at a level that's more welcoming than the current products, I think, well, to that end, when you developed your app using data from Equibase, you must have had a thought that the data rights holder would come calling at some point, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew it was possible. Um, and I, I didn't really design Handicapper to, you know, in some way um, get around Equibase. And by that, I mean, like, when you install the application to your computer, you weren't sharing a database with somebody else. And I didn't write any software, so... I'd automatically download charts or do that. You know, I, I called out on my kind of front page of my software that this data, you know, was sourced from Equibase. That they were the ones that put it together and paid the people to collect this information. But in essence, it was the same information that was in the PDF. It was the same information that they were comfortable giving on their website for free. And so taking that and putting it into a piece of software, you, I guess I realized, number one, you know, you could at least display it in a different way. Secondly, that I could do simple things that would maybe aid consumption of more data from Equibase. An example would be I, I created links from that last race date so that you could navigate directly to Equibase.com and, and see that next race or that previous race. And and then it was just, you know, like I said, it was it was a personal project that I kind of wanted to put out there as a showcase of what I think racing could do. Uh, a simple little product that someone would use that actually has various layers that you could get into 
and and encourage more creativity and, and independent creation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I knew that they may contact me. I was interested to see what how they would contact me and what would their commentary be. And in essence, you know, the way they contacted me set the tone. You know, they sent a letter to my home from the general counsel. And I guess I knew at that point that, you know, this is the way it was going to go. So I had a conversation. I explained my re- my reasoning behind my work. And I agreed that if they were uncomfortable, that I'd be happy to take it down. Well, what were the discussions with Jason Wilson of Equibase like? Yeah, they were cordial. You know, I, I didn't I didn't really want to defend or, or take any kind of aggressive stance or anything like that. The way I felt was, you know, I think there were some products out there that could fill the gap that would satisfy probably a small niche of horse players or horse fans, racing fans, that let them maybe just get into the world of, of horse racing data in a more sophisticated way than just reading PDFs. So I, you know, I explained that, you know, this was my thinking behind Handicapper, but he, he kind of led the discussion with that, you know, Equibase weren't comfortable with the idea that their data could potentially be um, put into machine-readable form at scale. And, and that really was their primary concern vis-a-vis the, their terms of service. So I said, okay. Um, the rest of our conversation was just me trying to understand what his goals were and interests with Equibase, especially on the technology sense. And, um, yeah, he has ambitions to introduce a lot of uh, additional technology. And, and I, you know, I acknowledge that Equibase had, had made some moves in recent years, such as making those charts free. And historically, you actually had to pay for old races and things like that. But, you know, I guess the a primary message was, in many ways, the, the involved parties in racing that control a lot of the decisions, be it the tracks or, or other parties, really hadn't come around to the idea of, you know, this data should be distributed as widely as possible. And, yeah, I mean, between his commentary with me and, and any subsequent responses to T.D. Thornton's articles and questions, you know, in many ways, racing is challenged internally about who's going to make the first move to introduce innovation. And, and if anything, it doesn't look like anybody's going to, to do that. I can completely commiserate with you. One week after I started my job at ESPN in 1992, I was actually flown out to Akron, Ohio, to interview for a job with the Professional Bowlers Association, the PBA Tour, because I had applied there because I was a bowler growing up. And I thought I was applying for a job keeping score and sending the scores along to the newswires. The commissioner at the time, Mike Connor, asked me, what would you do to change the PBA? And I was just a 21-year-old sniveling snot-nosed punk. Now I'm a 47-year-old sniveling snot-nosed punk. And I said all kinds of things, like you should put the early rounds on the Internet, which was a nascent thing at the time, and all kinds of other things. And the guy looked at me like I was Casper the Ghost. I mean, he could not have possibly been more scared, shake almost shaking in his boots. Needless to say, it took almost 25 years, but all those things ultimately happened. Change is hard. So what is the next step for you with your idea, which to me sounds like a good one? Well, I think, you know, Handicapper itself, I'm probably be mulling the idea of, of re-releasing it, but without the chart parsing capability, you know, you, you would have to do some data entry or something like that. There's a possibility I could probably look at some famous historical races. Like, I don't probably technically know who owns the 1973 Belmont Stakes chart, but it'd be fun to do some interesting visualizations with, you know, Secretariat or Man of War or whatever. And I doubt that would have a material if, impact on anybody's business. 
anything that displays data in a, in a new or different way. We want people to enjoy the game. And it's not, it's not, I don't think it's enjoyable to just lose money in a very foolish way. So I, I like the idea of, and that's probably my, my main goal. I like the idea of introducing technology to help people either enjoy a sport in their work, in their daily life. I'm a big proponent of using software in an efficient and effective manner just to help people. Change is hard, but not changing ultimately is harder. So thank you, Robin Howlett. Keep up the good work. And thank you so much for a few minutes to share your idea. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Our thanks to Robin Howlett and to Sid Fernando. I'll never be Mike Pegram or Saul Kuman as an owner. I'll never have those copious amounts of quid. But there's a way for middle-income working stiffs like me to get involved without a stratospheric bid. I joined a not-for-profit group that bought a two-year-old. He's getting ready for his debut race. The cost is fixed, it's reasonable, and I only pay one time. 200 partners provide the financial base. We don't get any money back. I said it's not-for-profit. The money goes back into the business. If the horse has earnings, they'll be used to keep him racing longer or buy more horses for the group to race, I guess. But though I've covered racing for several years, it's not the same as the anticipation of watching my horse run. From the day the club bought him, I've been so proud of our little guy. He's not gone postward, but yet it's been such fun. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.